This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. We look forward to this every week, Jason and I do, and that is when we get a chance to check in with Dr. Ian Lusbader, who is Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center, once again joining us on the phone in New York City. Uh, Dr. Lusbader, nice to have you back with us, uh, and this is on a day where we've got New Jersey's virus transmission rate rising to the highest level in weeks. Arizona seeing its infections accelerated, and yet we've got New York, you know, city set to enter its final reopening stage with some restrictions come Monday. Um, you know, depending on where you are, you get a very different story when it comes to the virus. What do you make specifically, though, of some of the spikes that we've seen throughout the country? Hello, Carol and Jason. Hello. Uh, hope you're having a good day. Well, I think what this tells us um, is that there's a lot of regional variation. I think it tells us that New York, uh, even though initially hard hit, uh, in some ways sort of the pattern is similar to the 1918 Spanish flu, where there were these pockets and kind of waves of, of viral infection. Um, and I think it shows that uh, staying at home and sort of that lockdown approach and masks uh, worked well. Hopefully there will not be um, a big second wave in in New York that we don't know as uh, people return and as schools open and so forth. uh, There may be uh, another wave, but certainly the rest of the country could have and and should have sort of learned those lessons uh, by by instructing uh, their, their population to follow a similar approach with uh, uh, social distancing and uh, avoiding large gatherings and bars and and really wearing face coverings uh, whenever you're outside your home. Uh, That would have, I think, uh, really reduced the number of cases. And and now we're certainly seeing um, a surge on the hospitals, which definitely strains uh, a number of the the healthcare systems. And, And certainly, to some degree, the rise in cases is in part with more testing. And we can talk about that. But unfortunately, there is a rise in hospitalizations, right. which uh, is not a good sign. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about face coverings if we can. It's become a political issue, to say the least. Um, I have strong feelings about it that I try not to just promote on the air uh, necessarily. Uh, Ian, what's the science? Exactly. I, I think we always have to go back to what is the science. And everything has some risk and nothing is perfect in life. Um, going out has a risk. Uh, investing has a risk. Everything has a risk and a potential benefit. Um, but we do know that much viral transmission is in these droplets and uh, carried uh, in secretions. So certainly there is some data that the virus may live for for a time on hard surfaces, and certainly the pores of the mask, really any mask, are larger than the virus. The, these viruses are, you know, submicron level, and they're they're they easily pass through. But but generally they're they're clumped in secretions, and the masks are really very effective, and the you get a much less transmission rate 
if everyone is wearing a mask. So you're certainly uh, reduce your risk if you're wearing a mask, but you really reduce your risk if the other person is wearing a mask. And and so I think the data is really clear, and it's unfortunate that it's a, a political issue. It's really more of a prudent issue, just like you don't want to go out without insurance you know, for the foreseeable future until we get this under control with vaccines. That's really all we have. They're simple methods, but they're reasonably effective. So as a clinician, as someone who understands and has seen, you know, virus cases, you know, firsthand, does it frustrate you, some of the debates that are going on around the country, whether it's governors versus, you know, mayors, um, states versus cities? uh, Does that frustrate you? Yeah, it it really is unfortunate because I do think, uh, you know, we do need leadership and and based on science, uh, really, uh, politics has to step aside, you know, for this. Uh, We always respect individual freedom, but... uh, you know, it's yelling fire in a theater. You know, individual freedom is up to a certain point of, of putting other people at risk, and that, that really is not okay. And so I do think uh, Bill Ackman said this, I think, back in February or early March, shut everything down, you know, wear masks. And, and I think that uh, is certainly a, a, the correct approach. And, and I think there is a reasonable approach for sort of a national mandate, you know, for this, at least for some time period. Uh, It's a little late in the game, uh, and I think cases are certainly going up. There's a big reservoir of people who are infected, many young people, with really few symptoms. And we do see that, not everyone, and that's really the reason we we don't want anyone getting infected, because even some young people can get more sick, uh, get more ill, and be hospitalized. But there seems to be a big pool of asymptomatic carriers that really is causing a, a rise in, in the number of uh, infections. But I, I would just say everyone needs to wear a mask or a face covering outside, you know, certainly for the foreseeable future until uh, we can be patient and get a vaccine, which I think is coming down the pike reasonably soon. Right. And we're going to talk about that because I want to get your take on it. We've talked with a few CEOs. We had a great cover story in Business Week magazine this week about what's going on in Oxford. There was a Goldman Sachs report. Mm -hmm. Carol, I'm not sure if you saw that earlier, talking about the chances of a vaccine here in the United States before the end of the year. And I have to think that may be one of the things that's underneath the positive side uh, of the market trade today, because obviously we know that is going to be a game changer. We're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Ian Lesbader, our go-to doc, clinical associate professor of medicine at NYU's Langone Medical Center, joining us as he does most weeks on the phone from New York City, Carol. Yeah, and I do feel like it's been a week where we've seen a lot of progress, or at least a lot of news. I mean, we talked with Inovia Pharmaceutical CEO, but a lot of news related to a, vo- a vaccine specifically. And I do feel like there's some momentum picking up, uh, and also the idea of a timetable. I feel like it's getting clearer and clearer. So we'll continue with uh, Ian Lusbader, doctor, clinical associate professor of medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week, Carol Masser, along with Jason Kelly, and this is Bloomberg Radio. And catch Bloomberg Wall Street Week tonight at 6 p.m. Wall Street time. David Weston speaking with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Sullivan and Cromwell Chairman Raj Cohen. That's Wall Street Week tonight at 6 on Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Let's continue our conversation with Dr. Ian Lesbader over at NYU's Lango Medical Center. Ian, I got to ask you, with all these vaccine headlines... 
flying by every day, driving the market uh, often higher over the course of the week. Uh, Carol's doing her imitation of vaccine headlines flying by, <laughs> just so you know. Um, what what do you make of it? You know, we're here at the end of the week. Where are we when it comes to the vaccine? Separate sort of the signal from the noise here. You know, I think there's definitely encouraging uh, progress for sure. You know, there are about uh, there are several in phase three, uh, a number in in phase two, and we have approximately you know 130, 140 different companies working on vaccines and. We really have sort of a limited number of ways to make a vaccine based on the body's immune response, which is typically uh, antibodies, you know, made by B cells and then a cellular response, what's called sort of a T cell uh, or cellular response or a variety of uh, uh, approaches and uh, quite complex mechanisms to recognize uh, foreign invaders. Um, but I think uh, these vaccines are encouraging because they use different technologies and, and elicit different immune responses. And we'll have to see which seems to elicit the uh, most long-lasting and most effective immune response. But I think many are, are really on, on the way using innovative technology like uh, of uh, the messenger RNA that Moderna is using and or DNA and or uh, uh, viral uh, adjuvants. There, there are really a number of different approaches. And it, it may turn out that uh, given the need, the number of uh, people that will need these vaccines, you may be getting one of several vaccines uh, as we see distribution and what's available. Unfortunately, I think these are certainly several months away and a lot of damage can occur in the economy and a lot of damage can occur uh, in people while we are waiting for those. So I think they are probably within six, maybe nine months away, maybe a little bit sooner than that. Yeah. And part of the issue is typically we, we test these on people and wait for them to get the infection. So right. one of the ways to accelerate that would be to give people a vaccine and intentionally expose them to coronavirus, which brings some ethical issues. You know, given the fact that some people die with this, is it really ethical? to expose people to a known pathogen, you know, even if they sign a consent form. But that what do you would think? be one. What would do you, you think about Would you that? do it? Would you do it? Um, that's a good question. I, I, I definitely uh, am in line for a vaccine. I would certainly participate. Would I willingly get exposed to uh, a known dose of coronavirus? That's uh, let me ponder that. Uh, so that. <laughs> That'll be well, next week's yeah. segment, Ian. Well, one thing I do want to ask you, the San Francisco Chronicle has a, a good story out. I just saw it, uh, I think, across Twitter. And it says, disturbing new revela revelations that permanent immunity to the virus may not be possible have jeopardized vaccine development and reinforced a decision, at least by scientists at UCSF and affiliated labs, to focus exclusively on treatments. Do you think it's smarter for us because of that, right? And you said vaccines elicit different immune responses. Should we be focusing more on treatments that you're going to get the virus, but we can figure out how to treat you, whether it's a minor case, a moderate case, a severe case, sure. and we can keep you alive? We need both. We, we need we absolutely better antiviral medications, something like an perhaps an oral remdesivir or something like Tamiflu, Oseltamivir, that we use for influenza, which can really uh, reduce the severity and length of an infection if given in time. Ideally, it would be great to get 
treatments that prevent either attachment of the virus uh, or replication of the virus. So I think we need multiple arms. And as we said, those vaccines, we don't know how long lasting or how effective the antibody response will be. It may be a seasonal vaccine that every year you need a booster and the virus may mutate. We, we don't think the spike protein where most of the antibodies are being uh, developed towards will mutate that much. But this virus has already mutated and most coronaviruses, RNA viruses do tend to mutate. So uh, we can't put all our hopes on a vaccine. Right. I think it's critical. Mm. But we really need better antivirals, not only for this, but for future infections, right. whether it's Ebola. We Pandemics occur. This was a bad one. Hopefully, we've learned many lessons from it. At some point, there will become another one, hopefully not more severe, but maybe. And I think we need to take this time to really aggressively prepare because it is only a matter of time right. before another one comes along. All right. Uh, always get smarter uh, yeah. listening and talking to you. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. Dr. Ian Lesbader over at NYU's Langone Medical Center joining us on the phone in New York City. Carol? Yeah, great stuff as always. And I always feel like, uh, as you said, Jason, that we learn something and really kind of take the week overall when it comes yeah. to the vaccine and the virus and just make sense of it before we head into the weekend. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's talk a little Business Week economics now, if we can, and we can. It's our show. We're going to do what we want. All right, Carol Master, (laughs) Jason Kelly here with you on a Friday afternoon, just asserting our authority, Carol. You know, do what we can. Uh, Delighted to have back with us Milton Ezzerati, Chief Economist for Vested, joining us on the phone from Pennsylvania. Milton, how are you? How have you been since we last talked? Hot and humid here. Uh, I've been fine, thanks. Watching the news carefully. Uh, disappointed that it's not getting better faster, but hardly surprised. Yeah. yeah. Why not surprised? Well, uh, you know, we had this initial flurry, uh, but even then the claim for unemployment insurance continued to remain remarkably high compared with their historic norms. And it's, it's just it's going to take a long time to get out of this hole that uh, we created in the anti, with the antivirus lockdowns and, um, and quarantines. And uh, the numbers we got this morning on, on initial uh, jobless claims still very high. Uh, 1.3 million, I believe the number was, yes. Uh, and, and that doesn't put a lie to the very good jobs numbers we got earlier this month, but it does raise a level of skepticism about how fast things are improving. Well, listen, all the big bank CEOs seem to confirm that. Jamie Dimon saying you're going to have a much murkier economic environment going forward than you had in May and June. David Solomon of Goldman saying, I think you're going to see a flattening in that economic pickup, pick up, and that will slow the progress that we made, the uncertainty persisting. What what does that mean? Play it out for us. You know, play the movie that will be our economic life in the next couple of months. The movie, it, it's going to be a slow-moving movie. Uh, there will be no great chases. There'll be no explosions. We we had a great, uh, at least it looked like great numbers uh, earlier this month and the month before on the, uh, the jobs report that the Labor Department puts out at the beginning of each month. Uh, the unemployment numbers, the initial claims for unemployment numbers temper that. It's going to be a slow climb back. Um, uh, it's nice to be an August company, but maybe that'll make me rethink things. But no, I'm only joking. Uh, that's the opinion I have. <laughs> so, uh, Milton, I mean, I, I do wonder from an economic perspective, how do you see this balance that we're trying to strike between reopening 
and public safety. I, you know, we just got a headline about California saying that most of their schools essentially are going to be remote learning again. Schools have really come to the fore as such a crux of this argument, in part because if kids aren't in school, we don't have a big majority or a, a big portion of the population, I should say, that's really, truly able to get back to the office and maybe even get back to work in any meaningful way. What's the lens you look at that through? How do you look at that balance? Well, I think we're going to be struggling with this balance at least up until the election and through the election. Uh, everything will wait on a vaccine or some kind of tremendous improvement in new cases. And with the opening, whether it's in Louisiana or Texas or California, even as it's going slowly, it is still the, the, the rate of the, the number of cases is rising. And that puts the fear of uh, the virus into the politicians. So I can't blame them. They're, they're walking a tightrope. But uh, we're going to be doing this kind of thing uh, well into the new year. So, okay, and that so, means and that means the jobs don't come back that fast. Well, right? that's that's what I want to know. Like, so what's the scenario? Just briefly, the scenario we don't get any more aid. So, what's the economic recovery look like? We get more aid and continue to get support. What does that recovery look like? Well, that recovery effectively, we don't have people at work. We have people um, being supported by various uh, mechanisms to keep consumption up and to keep employers from uh, making permanent down, uh, downsizing. So to that extent, I think it's worthwhile for the longer term because we don't want them to say, well, we're just going to downsize because that means the jobs go away forever. Um, but it's going to be tough coming back. Most of these people, or I shouldn't say most, a lot of these people are in service areas. They're in leisure and hospitality, right. and people are not going to travel like that. And these are these are chambermaids and waiters and cooks and, and whoever, and they're not getting their jobs back, and not for a while, at least not in the numbers that would bring us anywhere near where we were uh, this time last year. So eight or no aid, you're saying? It's just because those yeah. industries are just not happening. We know it was at UAL, yeah. right, has talked about cutting thousands of workers. And they have. And the, what we want to do is, is support industry, support business, support these people, the consumer, enough so that we get less of that than we might otherwise get. So I'm not saying the, 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 the uh, assistance isn't worthwhile. In fact, I think it is. But uh, it can only do so much. And so... As you model this out, and it sounds like, from what you just described in answer to Carol's questions, it's sort of bleak on an unemployment picture uh, for the foreseeable future. What does that look like from a numbers perspective in terms of either unemployment rate or continuing jobless claims, even if we think about the rest of the summer? Or growth, right, yeah. Yeah, well, the growth will be there to some extent. I don't think we're going to see negative numbers uh, in the third and fourth quarters mm -hmm. or the first quarter of the year for the GDP. Um, but in terms of the jobs numbers, we're going to see unemployment rates uh, above 10% for quite a while. Uh, and we're going to see these, these initial claims for unemployment probably near a million a week uh, mm -hmm. for the foreseeable future. Now, the thing is to look at if they're coming down. It's the same thing with the virus. You know, if the, if the new cases level off and begin to come down, the reopening can, can occur a little more quickly. We get a little faster improvement, but it's only a little faster because people are not going to go and throw, uh, throw all the stops out. So uh, we're going to see these numbers, these ugly numbers, near a million, over a million, slightly under a million uh, for the foreseeable future, certainly through the summer and up until the fall. 
Right, numbers we couldn't even... would change everything. Right, and numbers we couldn't even imagine if you go back to January and February of this year. Um, Milton, thank if, you. If you go back, yeah. to, if you go back for forty years, you couldn't imagine. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, that's a re- it's a really a good point. point. It's a really good point, Milton. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Have a have a good and safe weekend. Milton Azradi is a chief economist at Vested, uh, joining us on the phone from Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. He's also the author of Thirty Tomorrows: The Next Three Decades of Globalization, Demographics, and How We Will Live. And I feel like a lot of that is changing jason totally yeah and i think when you start to think about the numbers and the scope of them we've been numb to them a little bit not in a good way uh we need to keep thinking about that because you know the million plus million give or take 10 percent plus unemployment uh it's bleak those numbers are people let's not forget that you are listening to bloomberg business week jason kelly and carol master here with you on a Friday, joining us again on the phone from Raleigh, North Carolina, Ryan Kelly, Portfolio Manager for Hennessy Funds, looking after the Hennessy Gas Utility Fund Energy. It has been, safe to say, a tough place to be here in 2020. That's not a news story, but we want to get the latest from Ryan. Ryan, first of all, let me ask you about North Carolina. We ask this of everyone who joins us from outside our little tri-state area bubble. What's it like in North Carolina right now? Well, just like your last guest, it's hot and humid, uh, yeah. probably a little hotter and humid than New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Uh, but, uh, you know, right now, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm working from home. Many people are still working from home. And, uh, you know, we're just trying to keep the, keep the cases down uh, as, as a group. So we'll see how that goes. How does it impact your outlook, Ryan, in terms of what's happening? I mean, you guys are unfortunately, you know, in the situation or getting closer to situations that we certainly here in the New York Metro were dealing with a few months ago. So I do wonder, though, and it definitely, you can't be in it without it having an impact on how your outlook is, uh, how we get back to normal, what what kind of recovery we get. So I do wonder how it's it's impacting your view here. Well, as far as uh, you know, view of the market, it it it, um, it it kind of explains a lot. There's there seems to be, I would say, misinformation out there. There seems to be a lot of uh, differences between how people are handling this. Uh, some more conservative, some less so, and uh, that's kind of the way that I see the market right now as well. Uh, we've had, uh, as you know, uh, growth stocks completely outperforming value stocks. We've had different parts of the market with really a displacement of asset allocation um, in various different sectors. And uh, utilities, which is one of the uh, sectors that I uh, primarily focus on, utilities have lagged significantly this year um, versus the rest of the market. Um, and it's interesting that that's happening. And I would say, you know, I've, I've visited with you guys. I've been on your show many times for many years. I've never come on and had it been such a large discrepancy uh, in valuation for utilities. Utilities have never been so cheap on a relative basis versus the rest of the market. And what we've had here so far this year is the S&P earnings for this year have dropped almost 30% when you look at the estimates Mm -hmm. um, versus where they were at the beginning of this year. Utilities have only dropped about 2%. Uh, So... What that means is that even though utilities have underperformed this year on a relative basis, uh, we're trading uh, at about a 10% discount to next year's earnings and a 30% discount to this year's earnings versus the rest of the uh, market. And um, normally, utilities trade at about a 5 or 10% uh, 
premium to the market. Right. So there's a, there's a huge opportunity here right now, I think, when it comes to valuation. And yet, Ryan, as you know, as somebody who's managing a gas utility fund, and it's not been an easy environment, and your fund is having a tough time here, um, investors aren't interested. So it, it doesn't even matter. Like you're, I, I understand the logic here, but investors aren't interested. So what do you do? And I'm just curious, you know, what kind of flows are you seeing? Are you losing money from the fund because people are just saying, you know what, I just don't want to touch this area of the market? Well, there certainly has been outflows. Um, this is a specify, you know, the Hennessy Gas Utility Fund focuses uh, almost exclusively on utilities uh, with a much heavier concentration on natural gas utilities. It, it follows a, a, an index actually created by the American Gas Association. Right. So it is very specific, um, and investor interest certainly has, has waned. Um, I would, you know, given the valuations that we're seeing, given the fact that these companies, you know, 44 out of 48 of them pay a nice dividend, they're growing their dividends at 5 to 10% per year over the last five years, uh, dividend yield right now for these companies are four, over 4%. Uh, that's versus the 10-year at 60 basis points and the S&P at less than 2% dividend yield. So a lot of ways these look attractive on a relative basis. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying anybody should go whole, whole hog into uh, utilities only. I mean, there's many other places in the market to invest. But in an asset allocation model, this is the time to look at something like utilities, which are underperforming, which are at lower valuations, which have real good, strong predictability of earnings over the long term. And so any light at the end of the tunnel here, uh, Ryan? Only got about a minute left. Um, I think the light at the end of the tunnel comes when, uh, you know, we get another couple quarters behind us. Uh, when people start to look um, at, you know, how nice and predictable these earnings can be. You know, we've heard in the first quarter that um, from these utilities that they're still uh, projecting their, you know, they, they're, they're very, they can still project five years out and still see the same kind of 6 to 8% growth in earnings that they've had over the last five right. years or so. Right. And um, I think it just takes time for people to become more comfortable with that um, and to realize that the benefits of continuing to invest in utilities. Yeah, I would say it's it's definitely going to be some patience, and I think some of it, too, is going to be contingent on what kind of economic recovery we have and, and demand, certainly. So sir, it's going to be something we'll keep an eye on. Ryan Kelly, thank you so much. Portfolio Manager at Hennessy Funds. Jason, by the way, energy, worst-performing major industry group in the S&P 500 in the past 12 months and is still this year. We know. We've talked about it. It's What's brutal. been going on in the energy market overall. And it is interesting to hear him talk about, Ryan Kelly, that is just, you know, this seeming disconnect in terms and and really a almost like a historical performance in, in in many ways in terms of the uh uh the performance when it goes against everything that you know because it's not like utilities is this like newfangled thing that people are investing no. you know what i mean like yeah, it, it's I weird know. to see this sort of disconnect i'm driving in my car i turn on the how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This 
is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Dave Mazza back with us, managing director, head of product for direction, but it's got an X, so that makes it cool. Uh, Right, Dave? You're joining us from Vermont. Really nice to have you with us to wrap up the week. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. It's great to have you back. So as we wrap up this week, I mean, it's been a vaccine-driven trade. It's been an earnings-driven trade. What do you make of the market right here, you know, mid-July 2020, not a mid-July any of us anticipated? How do you read the market? The way we're looking about the markets going forward is that much of the, the news has begun to be priced in. And by what I mean by that is really the stimulus news. So we all know the economy um, has certainly rebounded sharply in many areas, but we're already beginning to see using some real-time data that because of the choppy reopening and I call it reclosing process, if you will, is that real-time data has struggled in certain states. But, again, markets are focused on the future. They're, in fact, writing off much of 2020 earnings uh, and looking ahead to 2021. And when you have that much unprecedented trillions and trillions of dollars of stimulus and maybe more coming, investor sentiment has, you know, effectively continued to be really robust. Okay. So with that in mind, what what's the investment strategy? I mean, you guys, you create a lot of products. They're all index-based, right? Yeah. So I'm just curious, where has money been flowing? Um, what's turning out to be the better investment ideas or the better indexing ideas in this environment? So it's interesting. Our, uh, we have products more geared toward traders. These are our leverage and inverse ETFs. So you tend to see uh, kind of shorter-term trades being expressed there. And what we have seen there is, significant amount of money moving into areas like home builders. We know they've had great performance uh, and traders have followed. Another area that's begun to pick up there are things like aerospace and defense. And really there, people are playing the Boeing trade because in that particular index, Boeing has a large weighting. So, you know, we know whether or not it's uh, the Robin Hoodies or what have you, people have been looking at beaten down areas. But what I, what's gotten me a bit discouraged is that even this week, it's become a bifurcated market. And by that, I mean every day it's either the stay-at-home trade winning or the reopening trade winning. And what we're really advocating, again, for people, investors with a medium-term horizon or longer-term horizon, we're just saying, what are the lasting changes of this pandemic? It's not going to be whether Carnival Cruises can begin uh, cruising again on October 1st, would have you. It's what, what changes have been accelerated or could be coming for us? You know, one of those is the trend toward remote working, um, whether or not offices reopen. We think you know, many companies are going to be particularly cautious, have more of a hybrid model going forward. And then also things like online education and telemedicine. You know, these are lasting accelerants that the pandemic ha- has really uh, caused, meaning those trends were already in, pra- in place. But the pandemic just made more and more people realize that there could be greater convenience or productivity had by thinking about work, thinking about connectivity in different ways. So, Dave, first of all, I love that uh, framing stay-at-home trade versus the recovery trade. I feel like that is something that's dominating just about every conversation. What's interesting is we just heard an interview that our colleague Kevin Cirilli did with Stacey Abrams, who could be, is in the mix, uh, we're told, for the vice presidential um, sweepstakes, as it were. 
in a normal year, in a normal uh, 2020, we would be talking obsessively about the presidential <laughs> election. And yep. we'd be talking about how investors are looking at it, whether it's the incumbent winning or the you know out of favor party or out of power party coming in how much does are you starting to think about that are you starting to figure that in when you look at the market and if not when well i think i actually think you you raise a great point and it's and it's somewhat of a myth that i think we're seeing just because we are in such a headline driven world uh you know we're in a twitter driven world real-time information but uh and there's a there's a health crisis that's still raging uh, across the globe and and for, for a better part of the United States. But what one of the risks that we see, and we put this in our 2020 outlook, is the risk of a blue wave. And that doesn't mean an eminent market sell-off. It just means that a lot of the regulatory policies and changes that have been in place under the current administration could change markedly. I think most people are still assuming that we'll have mixed government. And historically, research has shown mixed governments are great, regardless of whether or not a Democrat uh, is in uh, the president or a Republican. Mixed governments can cause uh, not a lot of change to happen in a short period of time. However, you know, a Biden sweep with the Senate would cause a significant amount of change. You could argue for the better or worse. Um, that's really not the point of investing. It's just thinking, are we pricing in the fact that there could be significant environmental changes? Um, you know, we already know he's laid out a tax policy. Right. Um, and that would that would have a, a major impact on market multiples, which have been the only thing driving the market higher this year. Earnings have been abysmal. Uh, we know, you know, many earnings are beat, uh, many companies are beating earnings as they usually do. But if it's all been a multiple that expansion, and if and if you have a significant downgrade in EPS because of a higher tax rate, it's going to be difficult for investors to continue to assign such a higher multiple. So yeah, we're looking out to October, looking out to November. If you look at the data. Uh, the VIX futures curve has a really funny spike right around the election. So yep. some traders are beginning to position for that. I think as we get closer, more and more will. But I think also the devil's in the details. I mean, I can't imagine an administration, even if it was largely blue, you know, imposing taxes if an economy is struggling, right? That's maybe not the right thing Fair to do. I, I think, you know, you really have to see what the details are ultimately, um, you know, in terms of policy. And, you know, we've seen a lot of momentum uh, coming from Wall Street already about, you know, investment folks thinking about potentially a Biden White House and what that would mean for Wall Street. So, you know, I guess time will tell. But as you said, it's a big story and it is certainly something to keep in the back of our minds. All right, Dave Mazza, thank you so much. Really good to spend some time with you, Managing Director and Head of Product at Direction, joining us on the phone from Vermont. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.